0: Well, it's so good to be around a group of thankful people. Just, it's, you can sense it, right? A people of gratitude. We're we're thankful for Sunday school teachers and thankful for children that come and get to uh, learn the scriptures and learn about Jesus. We're we're thankful for former pastors who return. Uh, that's a terrible title. I was, I was thinking the elders really ought to give us another name for. I think we ought to. Call people like you and me boomerang servants. You know they, they try to throw us out. We just keep coming back. So uh, good to see Jerry and Pastor Jerry, and uh, great to see the uh, sending of missionaries. Um, we are we are a thankful people, are we not? We are thankful because we are the people of God, people who have been called out from the world and chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, being transformed by the Spirit. And journeying together to that great day when the reign of Christ will fill the earth. I trust you have come this morning with a great sense of anticipation of of not only meeting with God's people, but experiencing God Himself. And of course, we're going to continue to do that very thing by opening the Scriptures and submitting to the Word of God. It is an act of worship that we would say to our God, teach us that we might do your will. So before we open the word, let's submit ourselves to him in prayer. Father, indeed, we are delighted to be here as your people. We are filled with gratitude for what you have done and are doing in our midst. And we now want to submit ourselves to you and to your word. And we ask that by your spirit, you would indeed uh, grab hold of our hearts, mold us, Father, keep us attentive to your word and to your spirit. And I would ask that on this day that we, your people, would be anxious to submit to you and that you, our God, would encourage us and convict us and deepen our faith. For Jesus' sake, amen. I sat at my desk in shock. My ears were still ringing from some very abusive comments that had just been thrown at me, hurled at me, shot at me like it had come from an assault rifle. A colleague of mine had been in my office, screamed at me, and went out with a slam of the door. And he had said to me, You're a fool. If you leave this country, if you leave this company in order to go off to the country of Ethiopia as a missionary, you are a, and I can't tell you the next words he said, fool. And my confidence was very quickly eroding in whether or not I should devote my life to supporting the church. It was 1989, and I was working as a director of engineering for a software development firm. And I had just announced to the company that I was going to leave that position and, and, and come to Ethiopia. And one of my colleagues was not very happy with that decision. He was convinced that to do so would be nothing short of, of ludicrous, of crazy, of you're nuts to do something like that. Well, he didn't change my mind but he certainly made me wonder, does the church really have that much value to serve like that? You may be finding yourself from time to time asking a similar question. Perhaps, perhaps you don't have people with such a direct attack on you and your, your value system, but it may come from other sources that make you wonder, is the, is the church really worth all the effort, all the time, all the energy that, that we might pour into it? Uh, for example, you might, you might have people around you who, who say, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that you go to church. That's, that's great. But I worship God in my own way. You know, I, I have a good cup of tea or coffee, and I go out in nature, and, and I have a good time with God. But if you want to do the church thing, that's okay. And we begin to wonder, huh, the church doesn't seem to have much value. Or it might be in your experience that, that um, well, you have people in your life probably who simply don't really have enough time for church. You know, Sunday is a good day to sleep in, kind of catch up and you would be tired. Sunday is a good day to take care of all those projects that you couldn't get done around, during the week. Sunday is a really good day to, to do some sports or maybe get your kids to the, to the playing field, to the ball field. And such people usually won't say anything negative about the church. They just will say by their actions, well, the church is not really all that valuable, right? Or, or maybe in your case, you, you, uh, you have people around you who kind of look at the church as um, a really good social institution. It's kind of like the, the Red Cross or UNHCR or, or it's just some other community development project to help the Kabbalah. A lot of people will look at a church like this and they go, oh, it's it's really good that you're here in the neighborhood. Don't know that you're all that important, but we'll keep you around. And I begin to wonder, is really there that much value in the church? And for many of us, we've probably at times been disappointed in the church. It felt like maybe we weren't cared for the way we needed to be, or or we weren't treated fairly, or or something has caused a bit of an offense, and well, the church isn't all it's cracked up to be, and we begin to wonder maybe the church doesn't have all that much value for us. I am afraid that in an atmosphere like this, we can grow very discouraged about the church and what it's worth. Unfortunately, God did not give us the task of creating value in the church. It's not our job to make the church worth something. We don't need to do that because God has done it. And this morning, I'm going to suggest to you that God has given the church value by the sending of His Spirit. God has given His church value by the sending of His Spirit. We often don't think of it that way, but uh, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture this morning that will, will really help us answer this central question, which is, uh, how is the sending of the Spirit giving the church value? When, when, the, when the Spirit of God descended to launch the church, in what sense does that help us see the worth of the church or the value of the church? And we're going to find, I think, three different, three different helpful elements in that discussion. First of all, we'll, we'll look at the, an invitation that the Spirit gives um, in His coming, an invitation from the Spirit. And then we're going to look at a signification or what, what, what was the Spirit signifying or indicating when he arrived, as he did arrive. And then finally, some ramifications. So you got invitation, signification, and ramification. If you can't remember anything else, maybe the three words will help us, right? We're, we're trying to understand what value we, under, we get in the coming of the Spirit to the church. Now, we're not the first to struggle with this question, Back in the first century, the believers of the early church, they had a very similar pull on their experience, on their lives, because that little group of believers in the first century, they had the people of Rome telling them, church? That's not very valuable. And the people back in Jerusalem were trying to pull them away from Jesus and saying, the church, that's not very valuable. And so in the first century, they were asking this question, how How do we know that the the church really has value? And to answer that question, the Apostle Luke wrote a passage of Scripture from Acts where he explains how the Spirit came. And when the Spirit created the church, it gave to the church a tremendous value. And you will find it very encouraging. We're in Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. We're going to find this invitation that the Spirit gives. And it might surprise you. An invitation that eventually we'll see how it brings value to the church. The invitation is this. With the coming of the Spirit, God invites people to avoid future judgment. God invites people with the coming of the Spirit to call on the Lord so they might avoid future judgment from God. We're in Acts chapter two. I'd like you to follow along as I read these opening verses with the event, first of all, of the coming of the Spirit in verses one through 13. Here's what happened. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, we'll stop there for just one second. Who's the they? You may remember last week we were in Luke 24 and the they would be the disciples and a handful of believers who had watched Jesus. They had met with him. They'd eaten fish with him. They They had broken bread with him. They'd seen him resurrected and then they watched him ascend up into heaven, right? And Jesus had given them one command, go in Jerusalem and wait, Wait for the promised spirit. So that's what they're doing. They're waiting in Jerusalem for whatever will happen next. And they really have no idea. And boy, were they surprised. Verse 2, here's what it says. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from the heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw what, what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and, and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard in their own language. And and they were utterly amazed and they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And coming verses tell us how they're from all over the world. And finally, in verse 12, the text says, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, well, they've they've had too much wine. So before we look at what it means, let's just recap exactly what happened in this event. At, At Pentecost, a, t- a period about 50 days after Jesus had been crucified, the Spirit came and grabbed the attention of Jews from around the world. The Spirit was grabbing their attention. He, he arrived in such a way that was going to make everyone sit up and take notice. So I mean, imagine this scene, right? There's a house. And there's a bunch of people in the house, and it's pretty quiet in there, until there's a sound of a rushing wind. Interestingly enough, it doesn't say there's wind, but the sound of rushing wind. That'll get your attention. And a crowd begins to gather around this house, and then they, they, they hear these tongues, and they see these people speaking, and they're speaking in different languages, and the text seems to indicate it's like, it's like tongues spring up on one person and then like fire, it spreads to another person and another person and another person. And the crowd steps, steps back and says, that's, that's my language. Oh, wait, that's my language. And, and that's, that's my language. And they're, they're hearing their mother tongue language, not the common language that they're speaking in Jerusalem, which is probably Aramaic. So this is like, this is, this is wild. They do not know what's going on. They are, they are getting their attention pulled to this house. Now, Luke, when he writes it, he tells us, he gives us a little insight. He says, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, exactly what does he mean by that? We're going to find out in a second. But, but in this case, I want to be very, very clear that when, when Luke says they were filled with the Spirit, He's meaning something a little bit different than when Paul writes into the Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit. Okay, these are two very different things. When Paul writes about be filled with the Spirit, he gives a command, a command that is, is an ongoing expectation for all believers, and it has to do with becoming more like Christ in the way we treat one another. It has to do with the development of godly character. When Luke writes, he uses a completely different word. We translate it the same, but it's a, it's a different word. And it really is connecting back more to the Old Testament concept of the Spirit coming on people who would prophesy and, and, and people who would be overwhelmed by the Spirit. So what is happening here in the day of Pentecost, in this house, is the Spirit, in, in an Old Testament sense, has come and, and begun to overwhelm these people so that they can speak in different languages. Whew. So now with the crowd we ask what does this mean? And so Peter goes on and he gives kind of a two-part explanation of exactly what this means. And his first statement, his first explanation is this that these people are what these people are experiencing is a demonstration that God is pouring out his spirit to invite people To call on the Lord because of coming judgment. That surprises us. Let's look at the text. We're back in Luke chapter 2. And I want you to see this this, um, statement that Peter makes about the last days falling upon them. We're in Luke chapter 2 and verse 14. When Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem... We'll stop there. Peter turns their attention to this text from Joel, which essentially says the Spirit coming is to give you an invitation to turn to the Lord in light of the fact that the day, last days have begun. They're not all finished at Pentecost. He says the last days are, being, are moving forward and God's alarm clock is going off. The, the, the time is moving forward and so now is your invitation to call upon the name of the Lord. I'm sure you, you notice that there in verse 21, that in this, in this time period, the Spirit is coming so that you'll do this. Verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Spirit of God has come into this room and created this commotion to draw Jewish people together So they will wake up and recognize that they need to call on the Lord for salvation in light of coming judgment. Hmm. It strikes me that even in this very opening of the text, we have a sense of value for the church. But Before I tell you what it is, let me tell you what it's not. I don't think the value of this section right here for the church is that we are looking for another Pentecost. The value here is not that we're looking to recreate a unique, unprecedented experience. It, it was the birthday of the church. And we'll explain that a little bit later. But it's a, it's a historic, momentous, unrepeated occasion. The Spirit has come. And there's nothing in the text that would indicate that we should expect an, a similar or repetition of this thing, but there's still great value for us. I, I actually kind of smile when I walk down the street and somebody says to me, Oh, you're a Pente. And I, I, I kind of smile. I go, Well, yeah, thanks, I'm a Pente. It doesn't mean that I'm expecting to duplicate Pentecost, because that was God's work. God sent the Spirit, God's doing what He does. I like to be a pente because I know that what happened at Pentecost continues to have value today, and the value is this, that the church, we the people of God, are positioned to, as people of I'll, I'll, I'll call it eschatological expectation. We are people who live in this time where we can call out to the world around us look, you have an invitation to call on the Lord in light of coming future judgment. And that is a tremendous privilege for us. We're enabled by the Spirit to make such an announcement and to live in such a way. It doesn't happen anywhere else. You, 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 don't, you don't get this kind of opportunity apart from the church. This is who we are, a group of people who have been placed here by the Spirit to carry on this, this recognition for the world that God's program is moving forward. And we know that calling on the name of the Lord will bring salvation. That's encouraging. That's the invitation. Let's let's turn to the signification, signification or exactly what did the coming of the Spirit signify on this day. And I'm going to suggest to you that the whole point of this is that the Spirit of God signifies that Jesus has been exalted as Lord and Christ. That this Jesus who walked on the earth who taught his disciples, who was crucified on the cross, has been exalted to the highest place as Lord and Christ. And that's what the coming of the Spirit is all about, to show that, to demonstrate that. Now, I got to show you the end of the Peter sermon because he has a long sermon. Peter's like, he, he likes to preach. Good for him. But we don't have time to go through his whole sermon. So let me take you to the very end and show you his conclusion. We're in chapter 2 still, at verse 36. And the text reads like this, where Peter concludes his sermon, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. You got the point, right? He says to the crowd, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, I I find it quite amazing that Peter could stand in a group of hostile Jews and make this statement. You remember where he is, right? He's in Jerusalem. He's in the, probably not far from the temple, the place where Jesus was convicted of blasphemy and insurrection He's working with the people who had crucified Jesus, and now he's going to say to them, oh, the one that you put to death, God is exalted to the highest place. That's a good way to get stoned, by the way. He's not going to win you a lot of friends. So how could, how could Peter make such a statement in light of the crowd and in light of the Spirit coming? Well, we're not going to read all of the verses, but I want to Give you a quick overview of the argument that he makes, the reasoning that he does in order to get to this very point that the coming of the Spirit is to signify the exalted Christ. So, the process he uses is, first of all, to talk about the, the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And look at verse uh, well, 22 through 24, and we'll see these, this statement. He says at the beginning of his sermon now, Fellow Israelites, listen to me. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. And probably everyone in that audience is going, yeah, yeah, we we remember that Jesus about 50 days ago and God seemed to do things through him with miracles and signs and things. This man, verse 23, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, you... You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God has raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So move number one is Peter saying, look, the Jesus you crucified has been raised. And he's actually going to go on in his sermon and give a couple of proofs to that. He's going to say, I can prove that to you from the Old Testament. David saw that Jesus would rise. You can go home and study that as, as, on your own. And I, I, Peter says, look, we're eyewitnesses. It, it, it wasn't that long ago that we saw Jesus alive and we ate bread with him and we ate fish with him. And we were together with him. So we are eyewitnesses of it. There's no doubt he has been raised. But that's not the end of the story. Because the resurrected Christ, step two, has become the exalted Christ. It's not just that he is alive. It's he went to the highest place that he could go. Look at verse 33. The first part of verse 33, after talking about being witnesses, the text says... Exalted to the right hand of God. So now the now the message is getting a little stickier. This Jesus, whom you crucified, has been raised, and now he has been exalted to the right hand of God, the, the highest authority that one could have. That's step two. But the resurrected Christ is the exalted Christ. And how do you know that? It's because he sent the Spirit. That's step three. So Peter says, when you when come to verses uh, uh, 33 and 34, note what he says. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. We'll just stop there. What, what does Peter say? He says, look, this Spirit that you see These guys who are speaking in other tongues? What that tells you is the ascended Jesus was given the spirit from the Father, and Jesus has sent this spirit. So the way that you know that this is the spirit of God and that that is the exalted Jesus is because of what's happening here. Wow. Wow these had to be amazing words for this crowd. Peter is saying, here's what this coming of the Spirit signifies, here's what it indicates. It indicates, verse 36, God has made this Jesus, Lord and Christ. Lord, now, uh, by the way, this does not mean that Jesus changed roles. He was always Lord in Christ. Jesus didn't take on a new lordship or a new kingship when he was exalted. But now he's seen in this role. We know it. We kind of know what Lord is. We already had heard that those who want to flee the coming judgment must call on the name of the Lord. That would have been God, Yahweh. And we know that the text says that the Lord, Yahweh, sent the Spirit, but now we also see that it's Jesus who sent the Spirit. What Peter is communicating here is that this Jesus is exalted to the very status of God Himself, the right hand being able to give the Spirit. And He's the King, the Messiah, the one whom Israel had to look to for all of their hopes. So the King of Israel. Is the King of the world. That's what the coming of the Spirit indicates. That's the great accomplishment of Pentecost. God poured out His Spirit on all kinds of people to reveal that the Lord, Jesus, is the exalted Lord and Christ. Hmm. Man, that makes the church valuable. Because you know how the church got to be the church? It's because it's created by this exalted Jesus Christ. We are His church. Think of it. The the church is not created just as a neighborhood organization to serve the community. We're not a social organization just to help out the Kabbalah. We're not a spiritualized UNHCR to bring relief to people. It's so much more than that. We are the creation of the exalted Christ in service to him and worship for him and proclamation of the exalted Christ to our world. Sometimes we, we unintentionally make little theological errors in the things we say. And so I've heard from time to time people say, with good intention, oh, make him Lord of your life. You've heard that? Make him Lord. But we don't make him Lord. He is Lord. Lord. He is the exalted Lord, and our response is to acknowledge him as such. As the Spirit has indicated that he is the exalted Christ, so this is what we do with our lives and with our words, and with the ch- being in the church has great value. Uh, there, there's value in being an Ethiopian citizen. There's value in being an American citizen. There's value in being a Kenyan citizen. Probably every, being a, 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 a A citizen of of any of our home countries has real value to it, but there is nothing like the value of being under the kingship of the exalted Jesus. We are citizens of His kingdom. So we are looking for our assurance that the church has value. And we're gaining that assurance by looking back at the birthday of the church when it all began. And what we're finding is that the the church began with with this coming of the Spirit that invited people to call on the name of the Lord so that they might escape future judgment. We've recognized that the, the coming of the Spirit signifies that indeed Jesus is the exalted Lord in Christ. Now, there, there are some ramifications that developed in this text. Things that happened because of this realization. We want to explore them for just a minute because those same ramifications kind of ripple to us today. The coming of the Spirit. On that day, it motivated the rebellious to repentance, And it came with a promise that the Spirit would be with them. And it came, he came to launch his church. Or grow the church. That's quite a mouthful. So let's see if we can unpack them one by one very quickly in, in chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Look at verse 37, first of all, and, and see, see this change in people. Verse 37 When the people heard this statement from Peter, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, you've got to catch the tone here. This is probably not a group of people going, man, wow, what should we do about this? This is a group of people who have just heard the one you crucified has been exalted to the highest place. So this is probably more like a panic question. We're doomed. What do we do? How can we spare this judgment that's going to come up on us for crucifying Jesus? And so... Peter gives this most amazing reply in verse 38. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The the invitation here is that when the Spirit of God has come like this and the people recognize this, they can repent and be baptized, they turn from rebellious to repentant. And it's actually exactly what happens. They're going to repent. That means they're going to recognize that, that their, their attitude toward Jesus has been wrong. It's been off. And, and they're going to have to change their mind about the Lord Jesus as the exalted Christ. And repentance coupled with baptism is probably the idea that they've been identified with this group of people. This group of Jesus haters, a group of people who who want to pull them to, to Jewish faith and Jewish religion. And Peter's statement is, be baptized, so identify not with them, but identify with Jesus and with this new group of people that Christ is forming. So repentance, the inward baptism, the outward, are going to be this full expression of a realignment of your life. And what will be the result? For the repent, for when, the, when the rebellious become repentant, the second ramification is this. You have forgiveness. Forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit, which likely means forgiveness. You will not go through that judgment that the, to- the clock is ticking away. You can approach the future knowing that with the Spirit you are You are not alienated from God. You are friends with God. You're not enemies with God, but because His Spirit is connecting you with Him, you have a relationship that is kindred. And even later in the New Testament, Jesus will be called our brother. What an amazing thing. That repentance brings this kind of forgiveness with the assurance of the Spirit. That's the second ramification. The third ramification, oh, I love this. It's the explosion of the church, the launching of the church. Verse 41, verse 40, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number. The Spirit came and great results occurred as he launched the church. The coming of the Spirit motivated the rebellious to be repentant. He came with a promise of his enduring relationship with them and launched the church. And that's why we have value as a church today. Rest assured that Our beginning as a church was not because somebody thought up a great idea that you you Christians ought to come together once in a while on Sunday, sing a few songs, you know, and and just pray a bit and slap each other on the back and maybe eat. Well, always eat. That That wasn't the birth of the church. The birth of the church was because there was a day long ago called Pentecost when the Spirit came and gave us our identity. This is who we are. We are a community of people, diverse peoples, who have repented and followed Jesus, and have been forgiven, and now live in in this God-formed community to declare the exaltation of Jesus. That is who we are, that is what we do. We live in the presence of God's spirit, the very one who came on Pentecost. And we are receiving salvation. Think of it, our future has no judgment. That's who we are. My friends, the church, has great value. It is important. Not because we make it important, but because God got us off to such a start at Pentecost. And the church continues today. May I make a couple of suggestions? This... Reality brings us great encouragement. If you have a family member that maybe sometimes gets under your skin, anybody have one of those? Sometimes you just get a little disappointed with them. But you know, every once, once every year you have an opportunity to celebrate their birthday. And birthdays do something to us because they kind of make, well, all right, well, that kid, he kind of makes me angry sometimes. But... When I celebrate his birthday, I'm very thankful for him and encourages us. We look back on the birthday of the church and we walk away with a great sense that God has done a great thing through his spirit in the exaltation of the sun to form this community and we're part of it. And let me tell you, we're talking about the church universal But the expression of the church universal is a local church. And if you're not a member of a church, my friend, repent, be baptized, get into a church, be involved. It is so valuable. A second word. We uh, we have value because we have the privilege of, of, of proclaiming this original message. The message in particular that the Jesus who was crucified is exalted to the highest place. He is our King. He is our Lord. And that is our message to the nations. It, it, you won't hear this message anywhere else. You can't go to the football game and, at the stadium and hear that Jesus is the exalted Christ. You won't hear it, likely, in a government decree. You, you're, you're not going to hear it from, from uh, your, your friends who are, are at the park. This is the message of the church our message is not primarily, oh, you're going to have ecstatic spiritual experiences. Our, our, our message is not, oh, you're going to, you're going to be, have some, some uh, great comfortable life. You're going to be filled with success. No, no, no. Those, that's not our message. Our message is this. Jesus is exalted to the highest place. And he reigns over all. And he's our king. That's what we proclaim. And so the church has value. Last comment. Some of you are listening to all this. It might seem rather strange. You have not really been included in the church. Oh, I know, you're, you're in the church building. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being one of those people like the Jews of the first century who heard and became convicted by the Spirit and repented and were baptized and made part of the body of Christ and the body of Christ with people. If that's your situation today, may I urge you, make today the day that you trust Christ, that you believe that he is the exalted one. I know I'd love to talk with you. Pastor Mike would love to talk with you. There are several of us who would be delighted to talk with you, find out about your situation in life, pray for you that this might be your experience. And you can be part of the church the most valuable thing on earth today. I don't know what will discourage you about the church in the days ahead. Maybe some offhanded comment. Maybe somebody getting in your face and saying, you're such a fool for spending all your time and money at church. But don't let it discourage you because this is the spirit formed community of diverse people around the exalted Christ. Christ. And his church has great value. And so, Father, we thank you that you have chosen to include us in your church. May your word by your spirit increase our faith, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.